Okay. Hello, everyone. We have uh, Ren Kuliani, uh, our speaker today. We're very happy to have you with us. I'm just going to do the brief introduction of Ren, then I'm going to turn it over to her. Uh, Ren is the Educational Director at Myers Oxford. She previously lectured uh, in Arabic languages at King's College. In her PhD thesis, she brought the teachings of Ibn Arabi in dialogue with contemporary literature and the Western hermeneutics. So go ahead, Rim. Hello, everyone. Uh, good morning to some of you. Good evening. Assalamu uh, alaikum. Bonjour. Hola. In all the languages of the world. Uh, it's lovely to have you here today. Thank you for the introduction, Dennis, as well. And uh, first of all, I cannot start without uh, thanking uh, Stephen and the uh, uh, Mohideen Ibn Arabi Society for inviting me to take part in this third uh, series of uh, Mia's talks, uh, which are dedicated uh, to the uh, memory uh, and works of uh, Misha Chotkiewicz and uh, uh, Keith Critchlow. In today's talk, I uh, propose to discuss with you the forms as well as the meanings of Aleph, and explore its uh, symbolic uh, significance. Um, as Dennis has mentioned, uh, my interest in language in general and symbolic meanings in particular has been informed by my readings and passion of contemporary post-colonial writers and my interest as well in modern Western hermeneutics. Um, such a passion, luckily for language and literary semantics, has been further ignited uh, when I uh, discovered the works of Ibn Arabi. It was like a safe heaven for me. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, one can never really quench uh, one's thirst with regards to the multi-layered meanings of Ibn Arabi's ocean uh, that has no shore. In this respect, I would like to share with you um, this citation uh, by Chodkiewicz where he says, a deeper knowledge of the forms of Ibn Arabi's discourse, and not only its content, allows the reader to perceive quite revealing echo effects, which might otherwise go unnoticed. The citation here demonstrates that when reading Ibn Arabi, the language that he uses, and the forms of his linguistic creativity are far from being an ornament but they are rather interconnected with the various themes that one can explore or delve into. As a matter of fact, the interdependence between form and meanings epitomizes Ibn Arabi's spiritual and philosophical views on the divine names. I'm therefore hoping today, to borrow again Shotkiewicz's words, that we will hear together these sound echoes that can emerge from such an interdependence. Perhaps I could even say hearing these sound echoes is a little bit like sama or mystical hearing, whereby the spiritual wayfarer listens with the ear of the heart and the hope of achieving union with the beloved. I'm going to begin my talk with the letter Aleph, which is in the title of today's talk, uh, and it, it was entitled uh, Aleph, the one and the many. Um, Aleph is the first letter of the Arabic alphabet. Um, it's a geometrical vertical line, as you can see in front of you. Uh, it represents as well number one, uh, and it resembles even, as you can see in the shape, number one. The form of the Aleph is isolated when it is a consonant. It therefore cannot be joined to other letters. So I'm going to show you a couple of examples with that uh, in relation to the divine names. 
The singularity of the alif here signifies the oneness of the divine, who is incomparable in his supreme position. Later, I'll come back to the form of alif as a vowel. So here I'm mentioning it as a consonant. We will also see later in this talk how this idea of interconnectedness as well as unity is expressed by Ibn Arabi. I believe uh, for those of you who have attended uh, uh, Stephen Hartenstein's talk, um, he mentioned in his first talk that, uh, where he showed the picture of the compass in relation to Al-Wahid, as you can see the one, as well as in relation to Al-Ahad. So when we say he is Al-Ahad, he's Al-Ahad by virtue of his essence, his uniqueness, his singularity. The 14th century poet Hafiz speaks of the alif in the following and beautiful words. There is no trace upon the tablet of my heart, save the alif of stature of the friend. What can I do? My master taught me no other letter. End of quote. In a similar vein, the early Suvian Persian scholar Sahl al-Tusturi says, alif points to God who is the Aleph, the one who has connected all things and yet is isolated from all things. So when we think about the sound Aleph now, the sound uh, it is the beginning of the blowing of the breath through the larynx. The breath is present in every sound that we produce in the same way that the breath of the one and the merciful, Nafas al-Rahman, is present in our world. For Ibn Arabi, the cosmos is the site where the divine names become manifest. The beginning of the blown of the breath uh, mirrors the divine creative breath. Our own breath, which starts with a uh, sound, creates other sounds which form into words of their meanings. So this creative process of speech and utterance of the alif signifies the coming into being of existence. The utterance of bi, kun, that coincides with the breath of the merciful, which in turn gives birth to the whole universe. He is the creator, al-khalaq, and therefore the opener, al-fatah. In the Fusus, Ibn Arabi speaks of the opener of the treasuries, and he mentioned that he is the presence of singularity. And then he follows on that by saying, he opened the words and the letters with the breaths of compassion. So following on from this idea of the breath, I'm showing you here a citation from the seven days of the heart, which emphasizes this idea of singularity and uniqueness of the one. So if I show you with my mouse, you can see this is the writing in Arabic of Allah and the uh here, it appears as a consonant and it doesn't join. This is the name, the manifest in Arabic, and this is the Alif here as a consonant. Next to the manifest, there is the divine name, the hidden. And as you can see, also there is the Alif and it is not joined. And what I'm saying is that Allah begins with Alif. It is the name for the divine essence, the all comprehensive name. Similarly, as you can see in the rest of the divine names, such as Al-Batan or Al-Zahir, the hidden and the manifest, it's similar. This is what I just pointed to with the mouse. And in this citation from the seven days of the, of, the, of the heart, it reads, everything is dependent on it, while it is dependent on nothing. Therefore, 
all the letters, they are dependent on Alif in the same way that creation is dependent on the creator. Um, for those of you who have attended Sandra's talk this week, she spoke beautifully on Thursday about this co-dependence between the creator and the created. And, and she mentioned how it revolves around the movement of love. So Alif here, as it appears at the beginning of the words, as in the example of, of Allah or Allah al Batin, it acts as a consonant and does not join. And it symbolizes the tanzih, which is the transcendence of the divine, who cannot be likened to anything. As the Quran says in Surah Ashura, nothing is like him. Undoubtedly, the Ahad, the Supreme, remains unknown. Or as Ibn Arabi says as well, he says, he is exalted, forbidden through its unreachability, and it remains forever in obscurity. End of quotes from Ibn Arabi. Hence, what I could say is that despite the hiddenness of the bottom, it is through the Wahid, the one, that the many divine names become manifest. To illustrate a little bit further this dependence of the letters on the Alif, I refer to Al-Muhasibi, who is an eminent uh, theologian and Sufi and the founder of uh, the Baghdad school uh, uh, in, the, in the 8th century. He says, when God created the letters, he ordered them to obey. All letters were in the shape of Alif, but only the Alif kept its form according to the image in which it was created. The citation for me echoes the Sufi idea that despite the variegated forms in which the divine reveals himself to the heart of the seeker, the meaning, mana, is no other but related to the essence, the one. If I refer again to the Fusus, Ibn Arabi mentions the following. He says, entering the presence of oneness demands, in a way he's telling us, that demands a purification of the heart. So, so far, what we have seen is that there is the alif of oneness, there is the alif originating from the breath of the merciful, and there is the alif of tanzih, or transcendence. There are other aspects that we can look at today, but of course not all of them. I'm sure that it's, it's impossible to do that in, in 40 minutes. So there is the alif as a dot and origin of all other letters, which I will show you now. So visually, you can see here right in front of you, and hopefully with the mouse as well, I can point to some of the Arabic letters. Alif is the origin and essence of all letters because it's the nokta, which means the dot, that gives birth to the rest of the letters. As you can see, there are some examples here. I'm pointing to the Ain letter. And then here, there is the Tha letter. All of these are Arabic letters in Arabic. And there is the ba, and as you can see how the dot is the origin of the manifestation of these letters. And this is drawings, of course, in the sacred art of calligraphy. What I could briefly mention here is that the system of proportions in calligraphy situates Aleph as the starting point and the dot as a measuring unit. Abdel Kabir Khatibi, a contemporary Moroccan novelist and philosopher, in his book entitled in French, L'Art Calligraphique de l'Islam, which has been translated as The Splendor of Islamic Calligraphy, 
states that the proportions of characters in calligraphy all refer back to the size of the aleph. And he explains in, he, in, in his words the following. He says, Aleph was also used to measure the diameter of an imaginary circle. So as you can see here, this was taken from uh, uh, Abdul Kabir Khatibi's book. And he's saying that within which, within this uh, diameter of the circle, all Arabic letters could be written. The calligrapher composed the characters and therefore proportioned them according to the point width, the size of the aleph and the diameter of the circle. I'm going to return again to this relation between the aleph, the circle and the diameter because it's quite a significant one in terms of understanding the meaning of, of aleph. Um, but I must confess that uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, Professor Deborah, is, Deborah Kelly is amongst us because I'm honored to, to, to say that her extensive works on Abdel Kabir Khatibi have been a really a, a great source of inspiration in terms of understanding this idea of calligraphy in relation to the mystical writings. Now, going back to this idea of the symbolism of the dots, Keith Critchlow in Islamic Patterns says the following. He says that the point is a symbol for unity and source. And in terms of geometry, it represents the center. End of quote. So I began the talk by saying that Aleph symbolizes oneness and that uh, it represents the breath of the merciful. So by establishing that link between the Aleph now and the dot, I'm emphasizing the creative dimension of such a symbolic meaning. So Aleph here becomes a sign of divine creativity all other letters are an image or forms of the one, the origin of the universe that emerge from the center, which is at the end of the day, goes back to the dot. This idea of forms is conveyed through Ibn Arabi's own words in this uh, citation. Ibn Arabi says, I mean that he is the very existence of the letters, of the names, the first and the last, sorry, the first and the last, the apparent and the hidden. There is no first or last, apparent or hidden, except him, without the letters which form these divine names becoming him. There are three key words here that stand out. Letters form names. They are interrelated. Without the Aleph, the other letters would have no existence. It is him who made the names appear and emerge. In the same way that the letters were created out of the dot of the Aleph, the center of the universe, the names of the creator originated from him. As the forms are created, transformed from a dot to letters, to meanings, they are not fixed. They are becoming him as Ibn Arabi says, signifying a constant state of ceaseless creativity. When I was reading this passage, an image came to my mind and I would like to share it with you. It was an image of a dervish. When I thought about this becoming, this becoming him is a little bit similar to a dervish who is constantly whirling in the same way that the letters dance around their originator the dot or the aleph. The divine names are there to remind us, a form of vicar, that it is to the one that everything returns. Such a circular dance echoes what Ibn Arabi is saying in the Friday prayer and the seven days of the heart. 
He says, make me turn round and round in the degrees of the mysteries of the realities. And I hope this clarifies a little bit why this image of the whirling came up. Having now showed you how the Elif embodies both the one and the multiplicity of the divine names, I have a question that I'm going to try to answer, but perhaps as well that you could help me later to answer it during the Q&A. How best can we illustrate or trace this movement from oneness to multiplicity or vice versa? How can we trace this movement from multiplicity to the one? My starting point is language. Um, so I went back to the Arabic language and the roots. And here are a couple of things that I can share with you. So linguistically speaking, if we take a closer look at the Arabic meanings of the one, as you can see here, al-wahid, we will find a clear semantic reference to singularity as well as multiplicity. In relation to al-wahid, there are the following verbs are connected to its meaning. There is wahada and wahida, meaning to be alone or to be unique. That's the first meaning itself. If you change slightly the pronunciation of wahada and say wahada, then you're moving from this idea of uniqueness to joining together and to unity. So interestingly here, in terms of the language itself, so the root, the wah, the ha, and the da, convey both the singleness and togetherness, unity and uniqueness within the same root. Now, that's regarding al-wahid. If we look at the alif itself, this is what we can find in terms of meanings. This is pure joy for me, by the way, when I talk about this, because you know, I shared with you my passion with regards to, to language and roots. So I mentioned that alif, when it is written, is, a, is an isolated consonant, when it is written at the beginning of the word, signifying the oneness of the divine. Now, in relation to the meaning, there is the verb alifa, as you can see from the root alifa. Alifa means to unite, synonymous with, like I mentioned earlier, wahada. At the same time, alafa means to form or to compose. So, for example, if you want to say compose in words, ideas, or a novel, you would use that verb alafa. So here, what we notice that in addition to the sense of conjoining together, there is the meaning of creativity, composition, which harks back to what I mentioned earlier in terms of the creativity of the divine breath as well as the forming and coming into being of letters, names, and the cosmos that I spoke about earlier. So alafa here, as to form or to give shape, also can remind us of one of the divine names, which is al-musawwar, the bestower of form or the shaper. In the Quran, it is referred to in the following verses. In the first verse, it says, in whatever form he willed, has he assembled you? And in another verse, he says, it is Allah who made for you the earth, a place of settlement and the sky, a ceiling, and formed you and perfected your forms and provided you with good things. So I'm drawing your attention here to this meaning of forming 
and its relation to the divine name of the shaper, al-musawwar. So let us now, what we can do is explore a little bit further this linguistic correlation between the one and the many, unity and multiplicity between wahada and alafa, and how it is expressed by Ibn Arabi himself. In one of the citations by Ibn Arabi, from the seven days of the heart again, I'm quoting, and which I'm going to read. I ask of you by every name which derives from the Aleph of the unseen, which encompasses the reality of all that is witnessed, that I may witness the unity of each multiple in the interior of every immediate truth and the multiplicity of each unit in the exterior of every ultimate reality. Then let me witness the unity of the exterior and the interior so that whatever is unseen of that which is exterior is not concealed from me. And whatever is concealed of that which is interior is not unseen to me. Let me witness the totality in all things, O you in whose hand is the kingdom of all things. What can we understand from this citation? The Aleph of the unseen here is the Aleph of the divine essence which unquestionably remains forever hidden. So I'm referring here to the essence. Ibn Arabi is not seeking a witnessing of this essence or of his essence. He is asking by every name that derives from the essence to witness the truth. What derives from the Aleph are the names of the divine, the forms of disclosure of his hidden essence. And it seems that when one witnesses the manifestation of the names, both unity and multiplicity unveil themselves to the heart of the seeker. And once such an unveiling takes place, one reaches the point of the totality, al-haq. If one were to witness or experience unveiling, he or she will witness both unity and multiplicity, where the interior meets the exterior. What one witnesses here is not the essence in itself, but rather the unity between the one and the many. And this unity can be ex experienced in an ultimate reality, as you can see in the citation. Ibn Arabi confirms this idea um, uh, in another citation that I took from the self-disclosures uh, by William Chittig. Ibn Arabi says, manifestation belongs to the forms, not to the entity. The entity is forever absent. The forms are forever witnessed. So if I were to illustrate this to you uh, visually, I could share the following slide. So here, what you can see in front of you, these are the different shapes of the Aleph. There are other ones that I even could not include because the slide could not include more of the shapes. And when I, when I was doing the slide, it brought to me um, a, a nice memory from one of the, the, the students that I had and who was learning the Arabic language. And he, he was looking and he was like, this Aleph, the first letter of the Arabic, is, is a bit like a chameleon. You try to catch it and it changes and turns into another form. And I found that a really nice metaphor that she used. 
So what you can see in front of you, the variegated forms or shapes, these are manifest to our eyes. If we want to hear the elif, we can hear it as a consonant, as well as we can hear it as a vowel, which I will explain a bit more later. So this, for me, in a way, it mirrors how the heart of the seeker experiences the beautiful unfolding of the forms of the divine. It's some sort of unfolding that it is in a continuous state of spiritual becoming. So this reading so far of the Aleph that I have shared with you emphasized the idea of oneness and multiplicity. multiplicity. So what I would like to bring to the fore now uh, in this last part of the talk is I would like to discuss or share with you the meeting between singularity and multiplicity and establish some sort of an analogy between how the Aleph can actually I would say, symbolize or reflect the intermediate realm of the Barzakh, or known as the Isthmus as well. Before I explain this point a little bit further on the relation between Aleph and the Barzakh, or the Isthmus, let me clarify how this intermediate status of the Aleph can be identified in its shapes, and secondly, in Ibn Arabi's writing. So visually, I'm showing you some examples of the names of the divine. I will use my mouse as well. So if I take here the divine name al-Batan, the hidden, here the alif appears as a vowel. It is joined to the letter B. And now we ended up no longer with the letter alif nor the letter B, but with the long sound B. So the following one, the same way, the manifest, you can see the alif as a vowel here, joined to the letter va in the avvahir manifest. And we are no longer talking about the letter alif, nor the letter va, but a long sound of va. And the same way applies to al-fatah. And we could take more examples as well from the divine names that actually have uh, this use of the, of, the, of the alif in the middle. Al-Fattah, the opener, we have the letter ta and the alif here as a vowel, and we no longer have a ta nor an alif, but we are actually have a ta sound, so an elongated sound. I was trying to draw a, a circle here, but as you can see, my geometrical skills is, is not one of my best things, really, or skills. Okay, so this is visually showing you that we actually can no longer say that there is the letter Aleph, nor a B, but it is actually both. They're both joined together. So we have the taste somehow, visual still, of an in-betweenness of the sound. So is it an Aleph? Is it a letter? Is it a vowel? One can clearly say that this is neither this nor that, and yet it is both. If we take another context, which is uh, the context of calligraphy, in this picture, um, it shows the alif acting as a diameter of the circle. All other letters derive from the center of the circle. So I noted this earlier when I showed you a picture from Abdul Kabir Khatibi's uh, book, and I've taken that from, from, from his textbook, um, which is The Splendor of Islamic Art. Although it might seem here that alif is tracing some sort of a separating line within the circle, it's on the contrary, the world from which all the other letters and shapes emerge. 
In a similar way, Ibn Arabi himself, when he talks about the Barzakh, he says, it is the bringing into form, tasweer of everything, bringing into form. And that ties in with, he, with Ibn Arabi's own definition when he talks about the Barzakh as, it's between between, a station between this and that, not one of them, but the totality of the two. So let's examine a little bit more of this point in Ibn Arabi's own writing. And let's try and see if we can detect this Barzakhi aspect of the, of the Aleph or the intermediate aspect of the, of the Aleph. Um, please do not worry by seeing all of this writing in Arabic. Um, we're not going to do any tasks or, or any translation tasks, but I'm going to just share with you some key expressions that are relevant to the talk. This is a passage from chapter two of the Futuhat al-Makiyya, uh, the Meccan openings. And Ibn Arabi here, he, he talks about, about, you know, he talks about the symbolic aspect of unity that uh, Aleph represents. And in this passage, he says that Aleph is maqam al-jama'ah. What does he mean by that? He says that it's, it has the status or the rank, which is of joining or conjoining and bringing together. So what does it bring together? It brings together the divine names, which is circled here. It brings together, uh, it brings together as well the attributes of sifat. And it is uh, alif here, it acts as the totality of all ranks or degrees, which is maratib. So these are what interests us, is what does alif do in a way? But then towards the end of the paragraph, and that's where more or less, it brings to the fore the, the idea uh, that I'm trying to share with you. He says in this sentence here, he says that the alif, lahu alam al-huruf. That means that alif has or encompasses the world of the letters, which is within the dot of the circle and not beyond the circumference of the circle. And then he ends the paragraph by saying that alif is the composition of all the worlds. And this needs some sort of a zooming because that's kind of the gist of what he is trying to convey to us. I'm glad also that I double checked some of the meanings here with uh, Cecilia Twinch because I needed to clear out some doubts with regards to the meanings of some of the words. So when he's talking about Alif as a composition, as a murakkab, it's a composition of the worlds of the letters. So here what this confirms that Aleph gains some sort of an ontological status. Denoted by the expressions world, the alam and worlds. He did not just say Aleph is the sum of all letters. He said the sum of the world of the letters. And that makes a huge difference both of course linguistically as well as ontologically. So the, rich, the richness of this symbol is therefore far from being exhausted, let alone if you wanted to explore the meanings of all the other letters that Ibn Arabi uh, uh, conveys or uh, talks about in chapter two of the Futuhat. As a matter of fact, when he, uh, when he closes or in his concluding paragraph of, of chapter two, uh, it's, it's very interesting, although I'm not sharing it with you, but I'm going to say more or less what he says. So he says that all that I have written and described in terms of the letters in this chapter is just a little significant and a little amount that I'm sharing with you about their meanings. 
compared to the deep and rich meanings that emanate from what he refers to as the world of letters. Such a knowledge that emanates from the letters, he says, he uses this word, he says, it's destined to the possessors of taste and smell. Now, to go back to the ontological aspect of the Aleph, uh, to be honest with you, at first I was puzzled by this relation between Aleph and the intermediate world and by this whole ontological aspect of it, as I wasn't sure where this could lead. Then in, in the rereading of the Wednesday prayer in the seven days of the heart, when I reread all of the prayer, uh, I, I noticed something that more or less confirmed this intermediate status of the Aleph. So earlier in the Wednesday prayer, I shared this citation with you, okay, where he talks clearly about Aleph. But the passage just before this paragraph in the Wednesday prayer, Ibn Arabi uses the following expressions, which I'm going to share with you now. He talks about richness beyond means is firmly established for you. Then following on that, he says, your name with which you unite the complementary oppositions and divisions of the two realms of creation and command. And then another expression, the unifier of each separated differentiation. So mentioning the Aleph itself in the Wednesday prayer alongside the divine names cannot just be simple coincidence here, especially the keywords of uniting and complementary oppositions and the unifier. So what we can see here is that Aleph is somehow the site of conjunction of two separate realms in the same way that the Barzakh in the Quran constitutes the meeting of the two seas. While such a unifying status is, of course, of, I'm not sure if it's of course, but I'm saying of course here from, it's inconceivable from a rational perspective. It is possible from an imaginative and ontological perspective. So let's dig a little bit deeper uh, into this ontological perspective of the Aleph. Having now more or less established that Aleph is a meeting point, a unifier, one can say that like the Barzakh definition by Ibn Arabi, this is how Ibn Arabi talks about the Barzakh. He says it's neither existent nor non-existent. We can say the same about the Aleph. If you attribute it to existence, you will find a whiff of existence within it since it is immutable. But if you attribute it to existence, you will speak the truth since it has no existence. Aleph then occupies an intermediate realm. It is the unifier par excellence, where singularity is not multiplicity, yet they both meet. For we are now entering a world where the union between complementary oppositions that Ibn Arabi mentioned in Wednesday prayer, this union takes place in, uh, in the Wednesday prayer that I, I showed you earlier. Then furthermore, and interestingly enough, when looking at the Friday prayer in the seven days of the heart, Ibn Arabi speaks about the arena of union. And then he says, I asked the divine to bathe him in this arena, arena of union. But as he bathes him, he bathes him in seas of the Aleph. And this harks back again. So there is in the Friday prayer, the use of the seas of the Aleph 
reminding us that actually the Barzakh is also the meeting between the seas. This, in a way, also sends us back to the expressions of Ibn Arabi that um, I, I shared with you earlier in the citation, where he says the unity of each multiple, the multiplicity of each unit as well. And he linked these to the reality of the truth. Now, if I wanted to translate this idea of the Barzakhi status of the Aleph, I found uh, an example in a literary work, a wonderful passage from Borges in his short novel, which is entitled The Aleph. Uh, it might be worth mentioning here for those of you who are familiar with Borges' work that there is um, another Elia uh, in one of her excellent journal articles. She looks at the various Islamic esoteric concepts in Borges' work. So in this short story entitled The Aleph, there is a fictional character, his name is Danary. And what he is claiming, he says that he has in the Kala, he hides an Aleph. And this Aleph enables him to write an epic poem, okay? Now I'm going to just quote what he says about the Aleph because it will beautifully translate what Ibn Arabi says, but in a literary context. I could not, of course, copy all of it because he goes on and on about the Aleph. So this is just a, a taste of it or the smell of it. So he says, the character, on the back part of the step toward the right, I saw a small iridescent sphere of almost unbearable brilliance. At first, I thought it was revolving. Then I realized that this movement was an illusion created by the dizzying world it bounded. The Aleph's diameter was probably little more than an inch, but all space was there, actual and undiminished. Each thing, a mirror space, let us say, was infinite things. Since I distinctly saw, I distinctly saw it, from every angle of the universe. I saw the teeming sea, I saw daybreak and nightfall, I saw splintered labyrinth, I saw close-up and ending eyes watching themselves in me as in a mirror. And in the Aleph, I saw the earth, and in the earth, the Aleph, and in the Aleph, the earth. I saw my face, I felt dizzy and wept. For my eyes had seen that secret and conjectured object, the unimaginable universe. So here there is this unimaginable world that reveals itself from every angle to the character. No wonder in a way he felt dizzy when he's talking about it. So through the Aleph, the secret of unimaginable universe becomes manifest. In the same way that here Borges describes the infinite beauty of such a space that the Aleph creates, the Aleph in Ibn Arabi's work has the significant ontological status, whereby, as I mentioned earlier, it's a complex composition of all the worlds. The Aleph traces an intermediate world like a diameter of a circle, where the world of the hidden meets the world of the manifest. And within this intermediate realm, everything becomes possible. All we need to do is to admire these possibilities and not to, 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 to feel too worried to get dizzy as well. And when we admire these possibilities, it's a little bit like looking or seeing the signs and the horizons of the cosmos. 
And I am echoing here the Quranic verse from Surat Fussilat, where, where it says, we will show them our signs in the horizons and within themselves until it becomes clear to them that it is the truth. End of quote. So this intermediate world between the one and the many is expressed by Ibn Arabi in the following citations, which I'm going just to read one of them. And um, again, I've, I've uh, taken this uh, citation from the Self-Disclosures of God by Chitty. He says, Ibn Arabi, the philosophers have said that nothing comes into existence. So I'm reading this one, huh? the one on the left here. Yeah. So the followers have said, the philosophers, sorry, have said that nothing comes into existence from the one, save one. But the cosmos is many, so it has come into existence from the many. And this manyness is nothing other than the divine names. Thus, he is one through the unity of manyness, the unity that the cosmos demands through its essence. So what becomes clear here is that the manyness of the divine names that gave birth to the cosmos cannot be dissociated from the unity of the one. Ontologically speaking, the divine being is the one who brings the universe into existence and creates the world. And this creation is nothing other but the manifestation of his beautiful name. The Barzakh, as I mentioned earlier, is this ontological realm where the divine names manifest themselves in different forms. In the same way that the Aleph takes on different shapes, like the visual slide that I've showed you earlier. So Aleph, we can say that it sits at the heart of this interconnectedness between what I would say, at the heart of the interconnectedness between being and non-existence, the one and the divine names. It is no wonder that earlier that uh, in the paragraph, the Arabic paragraph from the Futuhat uh, chapter two that I shared with you, Ibn Arabi spoke about the Alif as the sum of the world of the letters, hence highlighting this ontological status of such a beautiful symbol. So to finish this talk on this note on beauty, I would like to leave you with Ibn Arabi's words, which are the following. Know that the divine beauty through which God is named beautiful and by which he described himself in his messenger's words, he loves beauty, is in all things. There is nothing but beauty, for God created the cosmos only in his form, and he is beautiful. Hence, all cosmos is beautiful. So, there is nothing but beauty here, as the citation says, and the cosmos is beautiful. So in a way, Ibn Arabi is trying to tell us that this relation between the divine um, creator and the created world has this touch of beauty that encompasses his self-disclosures. And when I finished with this slide, I thought it was a bit too late to change the title. But I think today, if I had the chance to change it, I would have perhaps called the talk, the title, given it the talk, the one, the many, and the beautiful. Thank you for listening. And I hand it over to Dennis.